At Midway USA, we know the AR-15 is one of the most popular rifles in modern American history. Known for its modularity and widespread use, it's often considered essential to any gun collection. The essential things you need to run an AR-15 are usually always in stock during shortages, things like magazines and 5.56 ammo. Whether you're looking to buy a new AR-15 or buy parts for your modern sporting rifle, log on and for just about everything for the outdoors, shop MidwayUSA.com. Hunting boots are a critical component of any successful hunt. Whether walking a short distance to your blind or trudging miles through rugged terrain, your feet are carrying the load. Without the right boots, you could give up early and lose out on that trophy just over the ridge. At Midway USA, we make selecting boots for your next hunt easier. With just a few clicks of a mouse, you can decide on what's important, like waterproofing, insulation, size, width, and savings. For just about everything for shooting, hunting, and the outdoors, check out MidwayUSA.com. Mobile hunters, are you looking for a lightweight, comfortable system to hunt out of this season? If you said yes, you should be checking out the tethered Phantom Saddle. And you might be saying, Clint, how is this thing so comfortable? Well, let me tell you how. Comfort channels. Check. The comfort channels allows simple one-handed adjustment for leaning trees. gives you full control where you need it most. If you need it in your lower back, you slot into the low comfort channel. If you need it up in, in your in your lower back, or I'm sorry, under your rear end, then you slot it into the low comfort channel. Utila Bridge. Check. You might be saying, hey, what is a, a Utila Bridge? This is a one-hand adjust-on-the-fly bridge system that allows you to kind of find that hunting sweet spot no matter where you hang your tether. Lineman loops. Check. You might be saying lineman loops. Psh, whatever. Overrated, right? Wrong. Lineman root loops. Lineman loops. A little bit more rigid to where you can easily find them in, in the dark. I don't know how, how many times I spent time trying to get my carabiner to clip into my lineman's loop and just wishing it was just a little bit more sturdy. The Phantom Saddle has you covered there as well. Made in America? 100%. And if that wasn't enough, they just recently came out with the Predator XL platform. This platform is 40% bigger and has improved traction over the current Predator. I hunt out of the current Predator, a little smaller profile. But if you're one of those fellows that's got some big feet, some big boots, you might want to check out the Predator XL. So if you want to learn more about Tethered and all their products, head to tetherednation.com. The first thing I do in the morning before a hunt, before a scout, or just before getting ready for work is have my morning coffee, and I'm sure most of you out there listening are the same. Make sure you're filling your mug with Skull Brew Coffee, as it is the only coffee company that is both 2% for conservation certified and donates 10% of its profits to conservation organizations to help secure the future of our wild places. So head to SkullBrewCoffee.com and choose between three killer roasts of coffee and know that you are supporting conservation with every sip. Welcome to the Truth From The Stand Deer Hunting Podcast brought to you by Skull Brew Coffee Company. I'm your host, Clint Campbell, and you're listening to episode number 191. Today I'm joined by Dan Johnson of Nine Finger Chronicles and the Sportsman's Nation, and we cover a lot of ground, so stay tuned. What is up, everyone? Happy Wednesday to you. Hope you are doing well. Hope you are feeling fine. I'm feeling pretty good. I'm actually set up in my in my new quote-unquote office, which is really just the spare bedroom in our house. But it was one of those things where I've been working from home for the past five months, going on six months, and been working at the dining room table. And so we've not been able to use that. And my wife kind of grown t- has grown tired of that. And so 
I finally got a desk and some stuff set up in the spare bedroom to where I now I have a little place to to do my podcasts and stuff like that to where I'm not set up at the bar downstairs. Um, it's fine in the summer because it's nice and cool. But in the winter, um, you know, I usually don't run the heat down there too much. So it usually gets a little a little chilly. So I have a nice kind of convenient place to do my editing and my podcasting and editing of videos and, and stuff like that. So that's uh, so that's pretty cool. But on the whitetail front, man, it feels like finally here in Pennsylvania, the uh, weather has just started to turn ever so slightly. I mean, we had some ridiculously hot temperatures for the past, I don't know, two, we might even say better part of a month where it's just been really hot. I mean, we're talking like mid 90s, upper 90s type of type of stuff with ridiculous humidity. We finally had some rain kind of move through and, and cool things off. So that was very much appreciated. Starting to feel like the evenings at least are dropping into like the high 60s, maybe, you know, 70, 71, something like that. So it's starting to feel like we're getting some of those cooler kind of August uh, evening temperatures that I look forward to that kind of triggers that sense of, hey, bow season's just around the corner. And for me, it's literally, you know, a month away. I've got a month before my my season kind of kicks off. But with the weather turning and stuff like that and hunting season getting, you know, drawing closer and closer, it's been kind of, you know, the, the clock is ticking for me to kind of get this trailer wrapped up. And finally, happy to announce that the build of the trailer is finally done. I got the window installed yesterday. It's actually raining right now as I'm recording this up front on a Sunday. Um, and I went out and checked it this morning. It's all watertight, good to go. And so it might be a little crooked. The window might be just a little, a little askew, if you will, but, uh, it's keeping, keeping water out. So that was the, uh, that was the most important thing. So everything is done with the build, the solar is in the windows in the heat's in everything that the floor is in, like everything is rock ready to rock and roll. I could literally take it today and go live and hunt out of it. If that was the, uh, if that was the plan, but there are just a few kind of odds and ends that I got to clean up. I got to get a, a spare tire for it. Uh, some scissor jacks to stabilize it whenever I'm parked. Um, and then the next kind of small project I'm going to take on is I'm going to build a mobile shower that I can kind of put together and take down. It's all going to be built in an SKB case with a water pump and like a propane heating source so I can take a warm shower inside of it and it's easy to break away and kind of in, in, in stow. So, and that shouldn't take too awful long. Um, I kind of know what I need to do to, to, to make that, but that'll be like the one amenity that I'll have in the, uh, in the trailer. One of the, one of the cre- uh, creature comforts, I guess. Uh, the other thing with the, you know, the nights kind of getting nice and cool because, you know, I'd been wanting to, I've been jonesing to get out and do some glassing, but like I said, like the weather was just so hot, like even in the evenings, I mean, the sun would be going down and it would still be like 90, you know, 90 degrees outside with, you know, 80% humidity or whatever. It just felt like you were swimming through the air. And so that kind of kept me from, from going out. Not that I'm, you know, not willing to go out and pound through some heat because I've done that plenty of times to hang truck cameras and stuff like that. But, you know, it was just one of those things where I just didn't want to sit in the bed of my truck and be sweating and be kind of miserable. I was looking forward to those cooler nights and also, you know, wanted it to get a little closer to the season. So I'd see a little bit more development and, uh, and stuff like that. And so the past, you know, week or so I've been out a couple times, you know, went out once, I think I mentioned in the last podcast, I went out and saw a couple of young bucks, went to that same spot, and took my daughter this time and actually saw a really good deer. Um, there was a group of four bucks uh, total. There were, there were four that evening that all kind of ended up grouping together and they were actually bedded in the beans for like a little while. So I didn't even see them, uh, in this tall grass strip kind of in between these two fields. And, uh, I just saw the, the tines flicker and, and, and got the glass those up. And I took a video of those and posted that on, on, on an Instagram story. Um, and so that was really cool. Probably the most important thing of that trip was, you know, my daughter, I told her that day that, you know, I think it was Friday, 
I was like, Hey, you know, grab, you know, grab whatever you want to take. We're going to go for a ride and go glass some bucks. And she was probably less than thrilled to go do it. But once she got there, um, and we saw some bucks, like she got excited and she was all into it and pointing out where they were at and stuff like that. And so that was a uh, pretty cool. I actually got her behind the, the spotting scope. I finally got, uh, my, my spotting scope came in. I got, I picked up a spotting scope from, from Maven, partly for glassing, partly also because, you know, you know, for Western hunts, as, as I go forward, I was planning to do one this year, you know, hopefully next year it'll be, be in the card since this year's got canceled. Um, so I needed to pick one of those up for, you know, Western hunts, but also, you know, to be able to glass a little further distance in some of these fields and stuff like that. So I was able to take that out, um, finally, which was, uh, which was super cool. And I was able, that's how I was able to take some of the video. Cause these deer were, they were a fur piece away. You know, you could see them with binos, um, you know, okay. But it was just nice having the spotter being able to kind of bring them in close, especially with my daughter there, because she was able to kind of really see him. She was able to count the tines, um, and got her pretty excited about it. I don't know that she's ever going to necessarily bow hunt per se. Um, but if she's willing to just go out and glass with me and stuff like that and hang out, then that'll be, that'll be just as well. Um, and then today, you know, it's, it's raining. Oh, I forgot the glassing from last night. I almost totally forgot about it. Um, so I actually ended up going out last night as well. So I went out two nights in a row, which is an oddity for me because I usually don't glass a whole, whole lot because there's not a lot of places for me to glass that's actually close to where I'm going to be hunting. And so part of the reason why I don't do it a whole lot is because even if I do see good deer, you know, chances of them actually being anywhere close to where I'm going to be hunting is pretty remote. Um, you know, that was the case of, you know, Friday night when I went out with my daughter, like there's probably not a chance I'm going to have to hunt those deer. It was more just, I wanted to go out and see some velvet bucks because it's fun and it's, it's velvet's fist season. So, you know, need to need to do the do. Um, but last night I actually went out and with the intention of kind of taking the kayak and there's a, I think I mentioned this before, there's, you know, two of the places I'm going to be hunting this year I can I can kayak into, and, and there's a, a food source near one of them. And there's a small kind of strip in between the field and the cornfield where I can kind of see if they pop out. And so I wanted, I was kind of waiting until I had a nice cooler evening because, you know, it's really buggy on the, on the water and stuff like that. And I wanted to be able to sit for like a little while and not be completely miserable. So I ended up going out last night and glassing that little corner and ended up seeing two deer, one young buck and a doe. So nothing really too crazy to write home about. I checked that camera a little while ago and that camera kind of told me the same thing. So I'm kind of on the fence as to whether or not that section particularly is going to be in play. Um, and so since it was kind of slow, I ended up kind of, you know, going back to the truck and loading up, loading up the boat and getting out of there. And I knew there were a couple fields that were near this one section of public that I'm going to be hunting. And so I figured on my way home, I would just kind of swing by those and see, you know, see what was in those, see what was in those fields. And so as I was driving home, I passed by and, you know, I don't know how far it was, but it was, you know, 200 yards, maybe a little bit more than that away. And I'm driving by and I just like saw a group of deer in the field and looked and just, it was a no doubter from that far away from the naked eye as I was cruising by. And I was like, holy shit. And so I went up to the, you know, the next road looped around, turned around. Now when I was coming back, there was no traffic behind me. So I had a chance to kind of stop and pull the binos out and glass, um, this group of bucks up. And it was a bachelor group of, of four, um, two youngsters, you know, that looked like they're, you know, have some potential up and comers, but two that were like no doubters, um, biggest deer truthfully that I've ever seen in Pennsylvania personally. So those were the two biggest deer that I've ever personally put my eyes on in, in Pennsylvania. I'm not going to get into necessarily scoring them. Um, but you know, I'll put it this way. I would have shot either one of these deer in Iowa last year. Um, just to give you a frame, a frame of reference. So, and the good news is, is an area that I have a camera hung, 
um, and that I'm going to be hunting this year, a uh, piece of public, it's not too far away from this. And in fact, when I went back and looked at some trail cameras, uh, pictures that I had from like, I forget what the dates were, but it was either, I think it was early, early June. Like it was, it wasn't even the middle of the month yet. And I had a group of bachelor bucks come through on that particular camera that looked like, you know, two that, two that were, you know, going to have a lot of potential, you know, but just too early to really tell. And then, you know, two other ones that looked like they were just kind of younger, you know, had, had racks started, but you could just tell that they weren't going to, you know, amount to a whole lot that and their bodies were small too. They looked like they were, you know, two years old at, at most. Um, and so I went back and looked at those again today or this morning before I started recording the podcast. And I'm pretty sure that I have that bachelor group on camera. It was just too early to see. And I remember whenever I saw those initially, I was like, man, there's two of them in there that, you know, if they continue on their trajectory, they're going to be, they're going to be lookers. And I have a feeling that that's that group of bucks because it wasn't too awful far away from those fields. And there's not a lot of bedding or a lot of timber opportunities for those deer in between that food or around that food just in general, unless they kind of move off into where I actually have my cameras hung. Um, so it wouldn't be a far stretch to kind of consider that they're, that they're, you know, spending some time in that particular area. So now I'm kind of really interested to go back out and check that camera. Um, I'm not going to get a chance to hear probably in the next you know week or so, but when I do, I'll probably swap that out and put one of the uh, Exodus render cell cameras in there um, just to kind of keep tabs on it. So I know what, you know, what exactly is going on. Um, but so that was kind of the weekend or that was the week in, in, in whitetails for me. So some promising stuff there, you know, it's uh, you know, I know the transition happens and those deer may or may not be there whenever hunting season rolls around. And um, you know, those things are all true, but it's just nice to know that there's some big deer in the area. You know, I was talking to my buddy Chad last night after I got back from glass and I said, you know, you and I both know that those deer could be, you know, miles from there whenever they, when they peel velvet and, you know, in, in, in October rolls around or for me, mid September, you know, so, I was like, but for me, just seeing that there's big deer in the area, I always like to just see that. That means that big deer are comfortable there. There's obviously something that's keeping them there, whether it's bedding, you know, this time of year, obviously the bean fields, it's food. So um, all, I guess it gave me hope, and this is the uh, the season of hope. So with that, I'm going to be headed out today. Got some rain. Uh, I do have some cameras that I got I to put up, um, you know, or one camera that I need to put up in a place that I've that I kind of missed whenever I was, you know, initially hanging my camera. So I got to go out and do that today. But before I jump into the podcast today, just want to make quick mention that uh, my buddies over at Exodus, that they have kicked off their annual Velvet Fest campaign. I'm sure you guys have heard me talk about it before. If you've not, you know, if you're not aware, I will give you the deets on what that is. It is the official start to deer season. Exodus is helping us get the ball rolling, helping everyone kind of get rolling with their summer scouting. I know for me personally, I've mentioned this in the past, you know, when the velvet starts happening and velvet fest hits, that means it's time for me to get my cameras out. It's time for me to start checking my cameras and figuring out what inventory I might have around for the season. So from July 31st to August 21st, the 21st is coming up quick. So if you haven't gotten involved, you're going to want to listen to this and make sure you, uh, make sure you get in, included in all, all the fun they have going on. There'll be a, they'll have some awesome prizes for people that are using the hashtag hashtag velvet fest on social media. Uh, that share their whitetail adventures. Also, if you're in the market for a trail camera, Velvet Fest is the perfect opportunity to get ready for the season. Every single camera order comes with a random prize card that you'll have to scratch off and reveal prizes. And of course, I'm buddies with these guys, so I know they've got some killer things coming up that you'll want to not miss out on. To sweeten the pot even more, 
Each week, they will have a special offer along with a grand prize just as a teaser. Here's the grand prize for each week of Velvet Fest. Week one is a 2021 October archery hunt with Steve Shirk Guide Services. Steve gets on monsters in Pennsylvania. If you win that, you're a lucky dog. Week number two, a shoulder mount from Uran Taxidermy. Week number three is a September archery hunt for this season with Wicked Obsession in Kentucky and a shoulder mount from national award-winning studio, Full Draw Taxidermy. For any order on the website during the, the designated week, you'll automatically be entered with any purchase on the website for a grand prize. There's a lot to this campaign, so you'll just want to head over to their website. That's exodusoutdoorgear.com, and make sure you sign up for the newsletter because they'll be sending out a lot of uh, information related to the uh, to the campaign via their newsletter. If you're not familiar with Exodus, have a hard time believing that you're not at this point, I'll give you the cliff notes of their company. Over the last five years, Exodus has uh, consistently shown they build quality trail cameras that flat-out work and, of course, the best trail camera warranty, period. Every single camera is backed by a five-year warranty and even comes with a theft and damage coverage. That's right. You heard it literally half a decade and you're covered with the Exodus five-year warranty, but you more than likely won't need it because their cameras are already built to last. So be sure to take part in the Velvet Fest celebration and be sure to tag me and all your pictures because I want to see what you guys are up to this summer. So with that, we'll go ahead and get ready to get jumped into today's podcast. Have a cool show for you today. Uh, My buddy Dan Johnson of the Nine Finger Chronicles. I was on his podcast not too long ago. Um, so it just felt right to have him on on this one and do some cutting up talking about deer hunting. We cover a lot of ground in this. He's got some western hunts coming up this year that we talk about. We talk a little western hunting. He, of course, you know, we talk a little bit about the velvet inventory and what we have going on as far as cameras go. He has his Michigan hunt that he's headed to Michigan this year to hunt on a uh, on a on a out of on an out of stater, and we cover all that during this session. So I hope you guys dig it. It was an awesome conversation. Really enjoyed talking with Dan. And as always, I want to thank you all for listening. All right, folks, welcome back to another episode of the Truth From a Stand Deer Hunting Podcast. And today I have on a special guest. You may know him as 2020's Outdoors Sexiest Man of the Year Award recipient, as voted by his peers, <laughs> Mr. <laughs> Mr. Dan By God Johnson. What's going on, buddy? Not too much. Sexiest outdoorsman alive, man. There must have been one person that voted for it, and then the others just kind of forgot that there was uh, a vote. How'd that work? I know, right? I don't know, man. You know, I think they, I think they took a poll at ATA or something like that. You know, yeah. and you want <laughs> it's wrong. It's I, I tell you, it's wrong. It's it's wrong. I don't know, man. It's it, it might have something to do with the with the missing digit. It might just no. add a little extra appeal, like it's uh it's exotic. You know what I mean? So. <laughs> <laughs> it could be something along those lines, but how you doing, man? How, how you, how you been? I know you just got back from uh, Colorado, man. How was your trip with the family? Oh, dude, I'm, I'm real close to moving to Colorado or out West or yeah. something like that, man. It is, it's amazing. Every time I go out there, whether I'm going to Colorado or Idaho or, you know, any, anywhere West, the terrain, it just kind of, I don't know. It gets in you and it makes you want to, it makes you want more of it and more of it and more of it to the, you know, to the point now my wife and I are having these conversations like, dude, it's gorgeous out here. Do we, do we move out here? Right. What's the deal? Yeah. Uh, I, I hear you, man. Like when, when my wife, we, we lived in Florida, Orlando for like 10 years and we had the same conversation when we were moving, you know, we knew we were leaving Orlando and I snowboarded a good bit growing up too, you know? And so I was like, I would need just to be somewhere where I can do more outdoor stuff. Cause whenever I was in Orlando, it was all 
band and touring and stuff like that. And so when I left that, I was like, I need to be able to go back to like the other things that I'm passionate about, which was, you know, back into hunting and snowboarding and then just spending time outdoors. And I spent a little time in Colorado snowboarding and I was just like, this is where we got to go. I actually had a job opportunity there, but it was one of those things where we were a young family. You know, our daughter was maybe, I think she was a year and a half or two years old or something like that. I have no family out there and so far away from anybody to get any type of help or anything like that. And it was the same way in Orlando. And we both just kind of decided that Pennsylvania was probably the best bet for us just all the way around. But man, if I could go back in time and do that again, I think I probably would have bit the bullet and just went out West. Yeah. Well, my house in Iowa is one price, but my house in uh, Cal or Colorado is like yeah four times that. Yeah. And I don't even know if it's affordable, like, yeah. cause there's no, I got, you know, there's five of us in our family right now. Everybody has their own room. Yeah. We move out to Colorado, man. It's just a, a huge jump in, yeah. uh, in what you get for a house. And so that's like, that might be one of the only reasons we're not moving. Yeah, no, I hear you, man. I know that uh, I have a buddy who's getting ready or he's laying plans, like a three-year plan to get to Wyoming. And from what yeah. I understand, you know, Wyoming is one of those places where you get a lot of that stuff that you look for out west, of course, you know, um, but it's not, maybe it's not as quite as chic as some of the other western states, like whether it's a Colorado or Montana or right. whatever, where prices are going up, where you can still kind of get in and it's not overdeveloped yet. The, the celebrities uh, aren't moving into the area, so to speak, you know, driving yeah. up the prices. So, man, I hope you, uh, if that's what you want to do, man, I hope you get out there. It's a stunning place. I always say, you know, it's, I always tell my wife, I was like, anytime you let me go West, you know, there's always a chance I'm not going to come back. <laughs> <laughs> that's a fact. You know, that's, that's a fact, man. Yeah. This, this trip we went on was, I love my family more than anything, but this trip, my wife and I needed to do it without our kids. Yeah. So it was, I know I joke about it, but I'm dead serious, man. We needed to get away from our kids for a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you're also, I mean, you work from home now, right? Yep. And yep. You're, you're, does your wife work from home as well? Yes, she does. Okay. So yeah, we've been in the similar boat, you know, just from, because of, you know, uh, social distant world events, you know, issues or whatever. Um, we've both been working from home since March, you know, and my wife is actually away right now as we speak, like not like a far trip, but she was like, you know, I was thinking about going to visit my, my parents. I'm like, for the love of God, I think that's a great idea. You know, yeah. <laughs> I was like, you should totally go and take our daughter and go back there and hang out. And that way we have at least a couple of days just away from each other. Like, you know, cause it's like, we've basically spent the past four or five, however many months, you know, it is. And for however long in the foreseeable future together and without being, you know, separate, I've gone on some scouting trips, but it's not been a significant amount of time. And, you know, I don't know, man, like th that, that away time is always, always valuable. And I think as hunters, it's like, we, um, we get a little bit more of that maybe than some other people. And maybe we crave it just a little bit more than others, others too, you know, but, uh, yeah. Distance makes the heart grow fonder. Uh, that's what they say. Well, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, but, uh, so man, I know you've had some other big things kind of go on in the past like year or so. You also, you know, became a board member, if I'm not mistaken of the 2% for conservation kind of, uh, movement as well. That's, am I saying that correctly? Yep. Yep. Yeah. They, uh, their CEO approached me and a handful of other people and, was like, hey, uh, do you have any interest in doing this? And one of the my personal goals in 2020 
was to try to give back more Mm -hmm. to something in some way, shape or form. So when this opportunity was presented to me, uh, I just took it and I I let it be known to them that I was interested and I was very interested and not only, you know, do, do I have, you know, not, not to sound like I'm bragging or everything, but I have a good voice Mm -hmm. in the hunting community with the podcast and the network and whatever. But I also wanted to do something more than what I was already doing. So this was an awesome opportunity for me to check some boxes, man. Right. That's awesome, man. So how's, how's it been going so far? I mean, that's, I looked at that and I'm like, man, I was like, that's some serious adulting right there. That's like next level adulting. You know what I mean? Right. Right. So it's weird. This whole COVID thing has really thrown a wrench into a lot of conservation organizations, mm-hmm. fundraising events. Uh, I'm sure you know all that about that. And we ended up having to cancel our 2% for conservation rendezvous in Bozeman this year because of that. Or it's not canceled. It's postponed as of right now. But right. Uh, we all know that later this fall, things are probably going to just keep continually getting postponed to the point of cancellation. Uh, So there's going to be more information on that. But other than that, man, it's just been, uh, it's been slow going because of the COVID, the whole COVID thing. But once we see daylight, watch for this organization to really start putting out some, some content and making moves and, and seeing a lot of companies that we know within the hunting industry, jump on board this uh, 2% train. Nice. Yeah. I mean, for companies, man, there's no reason why they, why they shouldn't be, you know, even if you're a small company, cause I, I have a small coffee business that is part of the 2%, you know, thing. And that was really the kind of <clears throat> very similar to you, man, where it was like, I wanted to give back more. And my yeah. idea was like, let me create a small business to where it can generate some revenue and I can help, you know, give back a, you know, a portion of those proceeds to help, you know, do my part. And they really make the barrier for entry for even like small businesses to get involved. You know what I mean? It's like, you don't need to be able to stroke a huge check to do it. You know what I mean? It's yeah. just, you know, yeah, they make it really, really easy for you to get involved and they support you. And, um, you know, you're able to kind of use that to help promote and you're, and you're also associated with another, you know, other like-minded brands and businesses that, you know, are all like part of this, part of this overall community. And, you know, the end all be all is that you're doing something good. You know what I mean? So it's, I urge folks to not only businesses, but people, cause people can get cool thing about what getting in early. Yeah. The, the cool thing about getting in early, like what you did and what I did with the sportsman's nation was it's almost part of our budget now. Yeah. Right. It's, it's worked in from the very beginning. Cause I knew that I wanted to give back a certain percentage of my income in some way, shape or form, whether that is actually writing checks or giving, you know, my time, like, mm-hmm. uh, I edit some podcasts for some conservation organizations and that counts. Yep. So I, I wanted to do that from the very beginning so that as I grew, I continued to do that and can continue to give back and, um, again, checking boxes and, and giving back, man. Yeah, man. Just doing, just doing the, doing the right thing, man. That's the, that's the most important thing in a world that seems like a lot of people want to do the wrong thing. It's nice to have mm-hmm. folks that, you know, are, are doing some right things. But speaking of like the whole COVID thing, man, is that, has that put a monkey wrench into any of your, uh, your upcoming plans for the fall or are you still you know, everything's still kind of on track for you still. Everything's on track. Um, awesome. I actually, in a good way, uh, I actually took 2020 as kind of a, uh, 
not a backward step from hunting plans, but I'm only going, I'm going to Michigan mm -hmm. for a, a real short whitetail hunt. I'm going to South Dakota for a mule deer hunt and I'm not doing anything else other than, you know, hunting here in Iowa, but I wanted, I'm taking kind of a, a slow approach to 2020 because I turn 40 in November. So <laughs> my 40th fall, which is 2021, mm -hmm. uh, is going to be big. So I'm, I'm, I'm taking it easy this year. So next year I can do some big things. Nice. I like it. I like the, uh, I like the forward thinking and the planning and welcome early. I'm going to welcome you to the 40 club early. So it's, uh, yeah. <laughs> it's a thing. My, it's, my it's, knees, <laughs> my knees feel like they're in their eighties some days, but, right. uh, right. Yeah. There's but 40's just a number, man. That's right, man. I mean, there are days where you wake up and certain things hurt and you're like, I don't remember that hurting yesterday. It's like, actually, I don't, I don't even, I didn't even know I had one of those, you know what I mean? Like, you know, there are some of those mornings, but man, it's, you're right, man. It, it is just nothing but a number. Um, I mean, there's so many things I can do now that I, couldn't have done in my twenties. You know, of course I was in a band and probably wasn't living the most healthy lifestyle either at that moment. Oh yeah. Um, you know, but, uh, you get wiser, you get a little smarter. Um, and I just, I feel like forties are like, have been so far for me have been much better than like my twenties or my thirties. Just, you know, you, you have your shit together <laughs> Yeah. for lack of a better way to put it. You know what I mean? So like a lot of the things you used to stress about when you were younger, you don't stress about so much anymore because you've got it figured out. You know, yeah. or at least you have a plan, you have a plan for it. But, uh, so I think, man, you know, for me, dude, for COVID, you know, I, I got nervous cause I have, you know, two out of state trips this year and I got a little nervous because of Turkey season where there were some States that actually shut down where it's like, if you didn't already previously buy a tag, you know, they were not accepting non-residents, uh, you know, I forget what Seth, it might, it was, uh, I know John Mulligan ran into that whenever he was Turkey hunting. I want to say it was Nebraska or something like that. He ended up not being able to go because of that. So I got nervous. So I actually just ended up buying like all my tags as soon as I could. That way it's like, I got them and I know that I'm, and I know that I'm going. So I was kind of yeah. ahead of the curve for that. But, uh, I want to shift the gears here, man, and talk just a little bit about, you know, what you're, what you're hunting. I know you mentioned Mich Michigan, South Dakota, you know, I want to talk about, you know, how you're kind of preparing for each of those. So let, let's start with your mule deer hunt. So, you know, what's the, uh, like, what's your approach for getting prepared for an out-of-state trip like that where you're going? Is it, are you on public land? You know, I know you're in yeah. South, South Dakota, you're going to have some elevation and terrain challenges that are, that are going to be a little bit different from what you're used to in Iowa. So how are you kind of getting ready for all that? Yeah. So I'm lucky as far as this year is concerned. Um, not, not last year, but the year before, uh, I went on an elk hunt. So, uh, I ended up buying a whole bunch of that backcountry gear that, I needed. Right. Mm -hmm. So the, you know, the, the, the tents, the sleeping bags, you know, I have all that stuff now. So, uh, the big, the big financial investment is pretty much it's all gone. Right. 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 Uh, the only thing I'm doing right now is just, uh, practice and shooting. I mean, I got, I got the equipment. It's, uh, just, you know, continually shooting the bow and, uh, I lost 26 pounds in the last eight weeks. Holy shit, man. Yeah, dude. That, I mean, outside of hunting, that's, that's killer. Yeah. I, and the story behind that is my, I said to myself, man, I need to lose like 30 pounds just to make pack outs, just to make pack ins, hiking around the Hills much easier. So for father's day, this last father's day, she ended up giving me a, she bought me a fitness program. It's the same fitness program that, uh, she, she does. Mm -hmm. And, uh, I, 
went into it and I went into it serious and I checked my diet and I made it to every single class and, uh, lost some weight. And now it's crazy. Cause I was just out in Colorado, right? I felt like a champion out yeah. there compared to what I did in the past, I like huffing and puffing up the mountains and just like, Oh Jesus. I'm not only am I carrying everything on my back, but I'm also carrying gut, my big fat gut on really shitty knees. So <laughs> I, I, I went up there and, uh, I feel great, dude. And so, yeah, that's awesome, man. I mean, that's like, that's the thing. It's like the Western honey, man, is just, it's just hard on, on the, on the body. If you're not in some level of shape, it's like, look, you, you know, I don't like people, I don't want people to get the, you know, the, the wrong idea that you need to be an Olympian to go do this. Cause that's not what we're saying. Right. You know, it's like, but there is a level of fitness that will help you enjoy your time in that country versus not being in shape. You right. know what I mean? It's so, I mean, that's awesome, dude. Outside of the hunting thing, man, lifestyle wise, like, I mean, it's gotta be great for your knees. You know what I mean? Oh yeah. Yeah. I'm, and I was like, uh, <laughs> I joke because I didn't really eat that many of them, but I was like a blizzard a day type person. Like that, that's, <laughs> I, I did the standard weights, did maybe some push ups, some sit ups, did some squats, you know, but never really into the cardio. Mm -hmm. And, uh, I'm just, I am now confident and more, even more excited than normal to get out and do some of these Western hunts just to see how my body reacts, to see if I can go farther and longer and, uh, go deeper and, and, uh, make the, even in, even in the whitetail woods mm -hmm. tearing down and setting up and, you know, the mobile game, just going and yeah. going and going and making it easier. Yeah. So. hundred percent, man. I mean, I think the biggest place that I always noticed that and trying to, you know, stay in shape, it's one of those things that's, I, you know, I think whenever I left music or whatever, it's like I made fitness just a part of things because it may help me manage like anxiety and stress and and stuff yeah. like that. And that's kind of really what I used it for. And then the side benefit was I just was in better shape. And to me, where I notice it isn't necessarily, especially whitetail hunting is like, I don't notice it necessarily on like day one, two or three of a hunt or whatever. But I do notice it whenever I get into that like grind of like day five through 10, you know what I mean? Yeah. Where it's just like your muscles are sore, you're tired really you don't want to do what you got to go do but you're going to anyway and like it's a lot easier to will my body to go do that than it is you know if it's if it's in shape and can withstand it and that's when i really kind of notice the the stamina is that out west you notice it immediately because if you're short on air at elevation and you're climbing you know some gnarly gnarly mountain like it'll it'll let you know pretty quick where you stand yeah yep i'm uh i'm just and i, I don't care about what i look like anymore I, i'm I don't see my wife leaving me for a younger guy, you know, <laughs> right. knock on well, wood. Well, especially since you just won sexiest outdoorsman of the of 2020, <laughs> you know, come on now. Is there a financial prize with that? I mean, there could be, I think I, 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 I probably have like, you know, some, some couch money laying out there somewhere I could probably send you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, man. But that, uh, I don't know, just, uh, and like you said, I feel the stress relief. Mm -hmm. getting away and yelling into a pillow, basically, you know, just exhausting your body of all the stress throughout the day and then going back and doing it again and again and again, it, it is, a, it is a release for sure. Yeah. Yeah. No doubt, man. I, I think that's the one Pete thing that people don't appreciate enough is just that it's like, I, you know, if I'm feeling really kind of stressed out, it's like, I will just work myself in a workout to exhaustion where it's like, I don't have the energy to be stressed anymore. It's like, I just, I'm going to relax and then, uh, you know, get a good night's sleep and rest for tomorrow. And then by the time I wake up, I'm kind of feeling good. and back to like a normal kind of homeostasis where I can take on the day or whatever. Yeah. My favorite part of this is 
the mental aspect of it too, right? Mm, because yeah. the first, the first two weeks, three weeks of class were just, it, I'm not going to lie. It was straight up punishment. Yeah. And your brain is telling me, you know, my brain's saying to my body, you just need to quit and it will all be over. Just quit and lay there. Right. So, yeah. you know, you, you skip that part and you're, you're training your brain to not quit. And then when you start to see the results or you start to get through a workout and not be as tired or uh, be tired, but feel good mm-hmm. about it, uh, then transit, you know, transitioning that into the hunting game. It, it's just like, I, I'll be honest with you. There are days where I want to quit, but I am literally thinking about packing out a mule deer while I work out. Right. And that motivates me to keep going so that not only am I in uh, a better shape, but I'm not the weak link with the other people that I'm going with. Right. Right. And now are the other, are the people you go with, are they kind of, have they kind of picked up some type of fitness regimen to get ready to go out there? Or are they, are they kind of normally, you know, kind of ready to roll? Yeah. Yeah. The other guy that I go with, he's ready to roll. So, um, it's, uh, I don't know, man. It's just, I'm really looking forward to it. Nice. So you said you were shooting, like kind of getting everything dialed in and ready to go and stuff like that. You know, what's your, like, what do you plan for as far as your, like your effective kill range to be, you know, whenever you're shooting, like how, what's your shooting regimen look like, what distance is, and then what's the distance you would be willing to take a shot at a mule deer. So last year I was pretty dialed in at 60. Mm Mm-hmm. And this year, and and I say dialed in at 60 because that was the last pin on my site. Right. Right. So this year I'm switching to a single pin and I can go as far as I want out on that, but I don't see myself taking a shot. Like if I say 70, it would have to be a perfect broadside or maybe even a bedded deer for me to shoot 70. Yeah. But so I'm going to, I'm going to say out West on wide open, low wind days, I'm probably going to go 60 yards. Yeah. However, last year when I released an arrow on my mule deer, I was shooting straight down at 17, 20, 23 yards or something like that. Wow. Nice. Yeah. I mean, that's kind of usually my criteria out West is that like 60 ish yard range. That's where yeah. I feel, where I feel good. Um, you know, juxtapose that to whitetails, like, you know, what, what, you know, what's your effective range with whitetails? Like what's your kind of max, you know, distance for, for that? Yeah. I think this year was the longest I've ever shot at a whitetail and that was at 34 yards. Um, I don't, I'll just, I'll put it this way. I don't put myself in very many positions where I have. side of 30 yards every place that i hunt i'm in really tight to bedding or in a pinch point or to the point where the vegetation or the trees are so gnarly in there that i'm i don't get the opportunity to shoot past 30 yeah no i'm kind of the same way man i think the furthest that i've ever shot and killed was like 37 yards and then the past several have been like 16 8 you know what i mean like it's all been under 22 you know, 23 yards. And I did miss a, a nice one in Iowa twice last year at 28 yards. Um, that son of a bitch. Yeah. We won't talk about that though. Cause I've, <laughs> I've, I finally got over that, <laughs> but, uh, awesome, man. So what are your goals for out there, man? Like what's, you know, what's a successful hunt for you out there? I mean, well, let me back up for a second. Let me ask this, like what type of, I mean, this place is relatively new to you or is completely new to you. I'm suspecting. So how are you kind of going about scouting it and gaining your Intel about the area? 
Yeah. So last year was our first year uh, going out and South Dakota has a lot of public ground uh, that you can choose from. So through scouting, uh, through other resources like uh, people I know asking them, uh, you know, where where are good numbers? Where might we run into something big? Just conversations with people, uh, friendly people pointing us in the right direction. Other guy, like I'll be honest, I had a guy out there who he used to work for the South Dakota uh, uh, Department of Natural Resources. Mm -hmm. And he was a mule deer hunter, but he ended up moving to Idaho and he shared some of his spots with me, which made it awesome. So at least we had a really good starting point of where to start e-scouting and look. And then once we got out there, it was just, okay, we're here. Let's spend the first day. I mean, we didn't plan to kill a mule deer on the second day. Right. We did, but we didn't plan on it. Like it was just get up high and start glassing. And that was, that was the, the method of, I guess, starting off the hunt now that we know more now that we know how to use the um the maps the uh uh, topographic maps what they look like what it looks like out there from you know boots on the ground Mm -hmm. now we come up with a little bit different of a game plan looking for glassing points historical data from where the deer are are coming in and out and then it's find something like we didn't really even know what we wanted to shoot We, we literally accidentally killed a giant mule deer <laughs> last year. That's great. I mean, and, uh, the guy drilled him. Um, we glassed him over a mile away. We saw him come down into a drainage. We didn't see him bed. Boat trader is America's largest boating marketplace with over 100,000 boats to choose from. We offer simple, comprehensive solutions for those looking to sell, find and finance new or used boats. Visit boattrader.com to get started up into this drainage the mule deer popped out of his bed the guy already had an arrow knocked drilled him at 58 yards heart shot watched him die in in sight and then we packed him out like nice it i wish i could say that was the short story but that was the story right it it accidentally it accidentally happened but for me i'll just say this man i'll probably shoot the first thing i'm early in the trip i probably won't shoot a doe right but i have never even killed a species other than a whitetail. Mm-hmm. So for me to leave there with a a box check that said I killed a mule deer, I think that that's a successful hunt for me. Yeah, man, that's that's killer, dude. And I I agree with you, man. It's uh, uh they're, they're they're just cool animals to hunt, man. I had a when I was in Montana, I had an opportunity at two different at two different mule deer and just couldn't and couldn't seal the deal. And they're just, I don't know, man, there's something about them. I can't explain like the attraction to hunting them. Um, like the, the spotting and the, and the stalking aspect of it. Um, they're just, I don't know, man, they're just cool. They're big. I mean, they're a lot bigger than you think. Like until you, like when you oh, get yeah. up, when you get up close to them or whatever, you know, cause I was the one I was actually, I was relatively close to, I was probably 30 yards from it and I just couldn't get a shot with where I was positioned and, and he was looking straight at me. And so there was no way I was going to be able to get drawn. It was on this. Uh, top of this mountain, like where I climbed up like this little kind of scree face. And then he was on this little plateau on the other side and he saw me as soon as I came up over. And so he kind of hopped down off there and 
we thought we knew where he was going. So we kind of tried to circle around him and cut him off. And I did the whole, like getting my bare feet, you know what I mean? And try to like sneak up on him around this bend. And by the time I got there, I was too late and there wasn't enough light and he was just a little bit too far out of range. And so that was, that was really the opportunity, but it was, it was just cool to get that experience and like get that close. And they're just like, they're a sizable animal, man. You know what I mean? It's, oh, yeah. you don't realize how, how big they are until you're, until you're up close and up close and personal. But, uh, man, I hope you, uh, I hope you, I hope you knock one down, dude. I mean, do you, when you're glass, I mean, are, are you finding them in like patches of dark, you know, like near dark timber? Like you hunting any of those spots? Cause I know like elk hunting or whatever, you might check out like dark timber spots for bedding and stuff like that. Or, or is it a little bit different? Like, yeah. I'm not, I'm not familiar with the terrain out there. Yeah. There's not a lot of tall trees no. out there. So it's basically just big brushes. Um, there's small cedars, nothing, nothing that you could, let's just say, put a tree stand in. Right. Um, but what they're doing is they're coming off the tops of these pastures, uh, eating grass or whatever. And then they come down into the drainages to bed. And, uh, basically what we do is we sit up on an, uh, the opposing side of the valley with our spotting scopes, look across and just watch them come down off of the, uh, off the, the plateaus, I guess you'd say that the tops where all the, the grass is because they're up there eating grass, mm-hmm. uh, watching them come down and real slowly feed to their beds and make a move on them. Right. I mean, that's, that's what we did. And, and the, then we got lucky on that first one. And then the next day we're walking and I, I look to my left and there's a, a buck in the shade bedded down and we just walked right by him. We didn't stop. We just kept walking right by him until we were out of his sight and just chilled for a second, let him calm back down. And then I did a big loop around him. Wind was in our favor and I got higher than him and, and shot down. And unfortunately, uh, I think I only got one lung. Uh, he, he kind of rocked backwards when I, right as I was going through my shot sequence and I was pulling the trigger and he, he kind of rocked back to steady his feet. Right. And I think I just got one lung and anyway, that's, uh, just glass, find them, make a move. And there's, there's, there's good numbers out there. Hmm. So if you screw up, you just go walk down a couple more drainages and glass them. Glass, so, glass them up. Yeah. What's, cr- up. what's crazy to me, man, is like whenever I go out there and I'm hunting, you're hunting, you know, whether it's elk or mule deer or whatever the case is, Right. I think about like for one, the terrain and like just how challenging the terrain is and, and, and stuff like that. And then it's still challenging even with like the technology that we have, like spotting scopes and GPS and stuff like that. And then I always kind of think back to like what the place looked like, you know, 400 years ago, like when indigenous mm-hmm. folks were like hunting them with primitive equipment, you know what I mean? And that was how they were surviving, man. I mean, could you imagine, yeah. you know, hunting? I mean, I couldn't imagine hunting them with like a, a longbow or a recurve or any type of traditional equipment, let alone having like no, you know, magnification, like visual magnification to find these things. I mean, just think about how those folks were, you know, rustling up a mule deer or an elk or something like that. Yeah. And then having to get within 20 yards to try to make a kill shot. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. I, when you're out there in that terrain, yeah, I, I think about stuff like that a lot. When your mind isn't thinking about the strategy of the hunt, it think I think about things like this terrain really hasn't changed that much in the last thousand years, right? right? Yeah. So uh, I've talked to some guys who hunt out there and that, who have hunted out there for you know decades, and they're saying that 
it's not surprising to see a bed, a, a mule deer bed in some of these places that have that have great wind. Right. Mm -hmm. the, the the wind is in their favor. They they find this bed that looks like it's been there for 100 years. <laughs> wow. That's crazy. And then think about that in comparison to what you have with whitetails, where it's like their habitat's constantly shifting with yes. know, people developing, you know, building homes or agricultural changing or whatever yep. the case is. You know what I mean? It's like their their environment's always kind of changing. It's like it's just a marvel at the the different species and like how they how adaptive they yep. are. You know what I mean? It's just I don't know that you can find a hardier animal than than a whitetail as far as like their ability to to overcome and just adapt to whatever's around them. But that's actually the perfect transition because I wanted to now dive into from there. We're going to get in our car. We're going to take a little road trip. We're going to head back to Iowa is where we're yeah. going to head. And I want to hear about what you got going on in Iowa. So, you know, what's uh, we'll start at the beginning here. We're in the summer, right? Trail cameras, Velvet Fest is happening. What's your Velvet inventory looking like right now? You got some, I, I've been peeking in on you, man, and seeing some cell pics you've been dropping. And uh, it looks like you got a little bit of talent hanging out. Yeah, I'll, I'll tell you what, man. It's been a weird year uh, for me. This I don't want this to come off as bragging, right? But I live in Iowa, so I don't want to say everything you hear about Iowa is true because it just depends on right. where you're at. I, I'm lucky to have a, a farm that is good, right? right? And I'll just I'll put it that way. But typically, during the summer, man, like. If, if all of the bucks who I catch on trail camera on in the summer months stuck around, I feel like I would be passing booners to shoot booners, you right. know, like yeah. if, if, that, if that was the case, but my, the farm that I, this is an, on an average year holds a lot of deer during the summer, September hits huge shift and there's only a handful and they're all, they, they stay nocturnal right until later October. But this year is strange because as of right now, I I'll say I only have one deer on camera that I would consider a shooter as opposed to other years where there could be seven or eight. Hmm. What do so, you, any hypothesis why that, why that might be do you, you have know, a change in change in food? Like did the ag rotate? Yeah, the ag rotates. However, it doesn't rotate so much that, they that they just end up splitting basically they shift to different parts of the farm okay right so if the if one field is corn this year well this time of year they're going to be in the beans and that's that's the camera that they'll show up on but this year i don't know if it's some added cattle in the farm because it's a fully functioning fully working farm not only with ag but with livestock as well right so i don't I think there's just more human activity around this year Got as well. It. So I don't know what that's going to look like come, you know, November or October and what the trail cameras are going to tell me, but typically the farm's loaded in the summer. However, I've only checked my trail cameras one time. And what I, what I notice is until the beans are ready to eat, there's a smaller amount of deer on the farm, but once the beans become edible, like right now, mm -hmm. they're potted out and they're in there hammering them, there's an uptick until September. So between now and September, uh, mid-September is when the farm 
when all the big dogs are on the the camera more the the i would say the, the majority of them right so the next time i you know whether it's not this weekend but hopefully next weekend i'll be able to get out and check cameras again and hopefully they show up what do you think because you mentioned that they they shift nocturnal and it's funny because i mean I've listened to you for, you know, several years now and and I've, I've heard you say that before. Right. And so do you have any hypothesis why they're switching or why they're kind of flipping to, to nocturnal? Cause I mean, I, you know, I get the shift, right. Cause they're going to, their velvet's going to peel and then they're going to relocate to their fall core ranges and stuff like that. And I've had that instance too, on a family farm that I hunted, you know, several years ago, there was one deer in particular I was hunting and <clears throat> he was the oldest buck on the property. And I've watched him for three years. Uh, well, yeah, I guess I watched him for three years. And he would be, like you're kind of saying, he would be in any one of the ag fields, whether it was the clover field or the corn field or whatever. He'd be hitting that stuff all summer. And then it was like a light switch. Like you would hit like October 5th and he would just vanish. And you would only get nocturnal pictures of him. Only. Like even if he was yeah. in the food source, it was only nocturnal. Every scrape, nocturnal. Even scrapes that were up against like, you know, uh, up against side cover. Like it was still at night. Now he would then come back during daylight right around Christmas. Like you would start to catch him like five minutes before, before dark, like on a food source or, you know, maybe a, a, you know, a late scrape that was still kind of warm or whatever the case was. Do you have any hypothesis why he's, why those deer are, are going nocturnal during that part of the, do you think their home ranges just shift that far away that they're not coming over there to feed until so, so much later? Yeah, I think what I think, they almost prepare for the vegetation shift in a way. So you can walk through the timber right now and it could look thick and nasty, but come late October, you know, November, December, when all the vegetation drops off, you're looking at a completely different timber, Mm. right? Mm -hmm. So it's going to look like for me, some of the timber that I hunt is right now is gorgeous. Right. But when that vegetation shift comes on, it looks a little bit more wide open. So they're shifting. I I feel like part of it is they are shifting to a, uh, their, their core, I guess you would say their core ranges, but I think the, the big, the big part of that is they're not friends anymore, right? The bachelors are stripping their velvet. They are jockeying for position. They, you know, I, I think that there is a lot of sparring and fighting that takes place to be honest with you once the velvet goes off to say hey this year i'm king shit you're not okay i'm taking this spot so then they got to go find something else or they go find something else so that mixed with the vegetation change just means less less core spots for these deer to really feel comfortable in and so they're spreading out more looking for that uh, comfortable spot to hang out and whether that's 500 yards away or five miles away, um, I guess that's, that's the answer to that. Right. But what I've, what I've noticed is that come that late October timeframe that, uh, even into the first week of November, but then it really starts heating up in the second half of November that these deer start to come back into that summer range and really start cruising because I feel like they come back because that's where the does are. I mean, we all know, we all know you find the does, you find the bucks, but, uh, when the breeding season really comes into play is when, because the does don't ever leave, 
Right. They, yeah. they stick around, which is kind of bizarre because cover is cover. Right. right. So, yeah, it's uh, I mean, it's interesting. because I think a lot of people overlook what you had mentioned, you know, which is that the that the the cover is going to change. Right. It's like because you don't think about it. A lot of folks probably don't think about it whenever they're hanging trail cameras and stuff like that. And it's like, hey, I got a bunch of bucks right here. They're they're crossing right here. And then they vanish in October or, or mid-October whenever the leaves really kind of start dropping. It's You know, of course, it depends on where you're at and like what climate you're in and how long the leaves hold and stuff like that will, you know, kind of play a role in that. But I think so many times people get enamored with a trail camera spot and they want to hunt that general area because they're like, hey, I've got a bunch of deer here. And then when the foliage changes, it's like a completely different world. You know what yeah. I mean? And I think a lot of folks, you know, kind of maybe their plans get blown up with that. Cause I have one spot now that like, I have a couple places that are new to me this year on, on, uh, that I've never hunted before. And like, I've got trail cameras in there and I just pulled a camera this past weekend and there's a buck bed that I had found and it's in this clear cut. And I have a camera that's maybe 125, 140 yards off of that bed. There's no scrape, no nothing there. I was just like, I feel like this is going to be the spot where I'm going to get action. Right. And it's uh, on the edge of this clear cut. And man, I have, I don't know, there was like 300 pictures on that camera. And out of all those pictures, I think, you know, there were some false triggers in there, but I'll say like no more than 10% of those pictures were, were, were doe pictures. And I would say of the buck pictures, at least 80% of those buck pictures were all during daylight hours between like 8.30 a.m. and 2.30 p.m. Yeah. And so I, I just happened to find like a little spot. But the thing I'm waiting for is like when leaves start dropping, how well first they're going to shift when they peel right but then once that happens it's like when the leaves start dropping how much is that going to change how how willing they are to spend time in there now the good news is it's on the edge of a clear cut so it's inherently kind of thick in that area but i just have to kind of figure it out this this first year because it's going to drastically change and i'm not sure what's going to happen when all yeah. when, when all that takes place but yeah that's a fact and the other the other thing is okay so the beans just like uh you know, humans, they, they have different tastes for different foods at different times. The beans don't become as palatable going into September as they dry out. Well, what are they, what are they going to do? They're going to go back into the timber and, and they're going to go fi- try to find acorns. And that, you know, that's right. me speaking the Midwest, you yeah. know, from the mi- Midwest uh, point of view, but they're going to go find the acorns. They're going to go find any fresh uh, greens that they can, uh, that they can find thus keeping them in the timber timber with a perceived nocturnal movement right, right? Does, yep. because nobody ever I, i'm not going to say nobody but a lot of people including myself don't go to and find an acorn tree and put a trail camera up just because there's an acorn tree right right like for me it's food uh i don't have any food plots but it's uh fence crossing inside corners pinch points um some bedding areas or scrapes right Mm -hmm. and that's where i put the trail cameras so when they're visiting those locations those are typically nocturnal type type places even though they're moving somewhere right they're just not moving like and i don't hunt field edges hardly at all right so that's why i guess i've learned over the years you want to see something especially in the the first three quarters of October, you want to see something daylight, move into those staging areas, move right. into the, the, the pinch points and, and the, not necessarily bedding areas quite. You there still? Yeah, I'm here. Oh, okay. Sorry. <laughs> I don't know what happened. I've, I've lost power today. And so I'm running everything. My house is running off its generator. 
because we had tornadoes. Oh boy. Yeah. So it's like the internet probably was getting just a little a little bit weird. So uh, sorry about that. But I wanted to follow up with you on. Uh, you had mentioned, you know, you started alluding to just a little bit about how you're running trail cameras a little bit because you have them set at these specific places. You know, give me a sense of like how you're using trail cameras at different times times of the year. I'm suspecting like this time of year, you're probably really kind of focusing on those food sources and stuff like that for inventory. You know, when you do transition them, like what does that what does that look like and what type of intel are you trying to get at certain times of the year? Yeah, it's it's real simple. Like right now, I only have aside from one trail camera. Uh, I went scouting last week, early last week, and I found two giant beds. And so I put a cell cam over those beds just to kind of see what was in the area. But right now, majority of my trail cameras, and I only have four out right now are over top of mineral stations. Mm -hmm. Right. And that is how I get my inventory. Uh, I'm not the kind of guy who thinks that, uh, these mineral stations are going to help these deer grow these big racks, right? right. The only, re- I, I, it's an attractant and I get to see lots of pictures of deer, right? That's, that's the goal. As hunting season comes into play first couple weeks of September, I do my shift. I take all the trail cameras off the mineral stations. I put them in the fence crossings, the pinch points, maybe some active scrapes, um, downwind of popular bedding areas, you know, uh, fence crossings, all these different, these different locations that concentrate deer movement. And then I let them soak until it's time to go hunt first. You know, whenever I go to the farm, pull the cards, look for wherever a shooter might be and then hyper-focus on that location. And even if that means taking trail cameras from other places that don't have any shooters and bringing them in. And I, and I'm not the first guy to come up with this idea, but I, I steal it and I use it. You cast a big net mm-hmm. with trail cameras and then you shrink that net down into an area where Right. Where you, where you can start to kind of squeeze the, the movement of a particular deer that you want to, that you want to try to focus on or that you want to, that, that catches your, that your interest, so to speak. Yeah. So like, okay, well, I got a, I got a picture of him on a scrape here. Well, now let's bring a trail camera onto this fence crossing. Okay. He's not crossing here. And even though, even data of not getting trail camera pictures is data because yeah. it tells you where he's not at. Right. So, okay. He's hitting this scrape. He's not on this, uh, fence crossing. Well, let me move that trail camera now over to here to this scrape. Okay. He's hitting this scrape. He's hitting this scrape. So let's draw a line between there. Let's look for a really good terrain feature within that line and let's set up there. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, I know you, I know you play the long game too, when it comes to trail camera data that you'll look at like annual, you know, information and stuff like that. You know, are there any deer this year that you have history with that you're, that you like your chances on? Man. I'm working on a deer that I've got three, this will be the fourth year of, um, that I, that I actually am hunting him. I would say third year of actually hunting him. The first year was a, he was a a gorgeous three-year-old and I said, please don't show up. Like one of the, (laughs) you know, one of those deer were, if he came, if he came in front of me, it would have been tough to pass, Mm -hmm. but I'm glad I didn't see him. So now the last two years worth of trail camera uh, data that I've gotten, I've got a really good idea of his range throughout 
you know, late October all the way into mid December. And the goal is to just, depending on if he's still alive, right? I, right. I do not know if he's alive. At, that deer, then I know what I'm doing in the fall. If he's not alive. I was just going to say that deer though. It's like, you know, I've heard you talk about him in the past. If he is, yeah. if he were dead, you would probably have heard about it. I would imagine. Yeah. Yeah. Unless EHD got him or CWD got him or something like that. Right. Or he got hit by a car and ran off and died. Who knows? Right. But he typically, he let me know last year that he was alive on my first card poll by now. Mm-hmm. But in past years, he really hasn't shown up until this late July, early August timeframe uh, when the beans are ripe. So hell, he, he could still be there. Uh, he could, he could still be alive. It, I'm not giving right. up on him yet. I just, uh, I don't know. Uh, I, I know his movement now. I know where he's been traditionally the last four years and, uh, I'm going to play that game. It's almost like I, I'm just going to cut the farm in half almost and not even, not even unless there's another big deer on some trail cameras, I'm not even going to focus on that part of the farm unless I get data that maybe this, this deer is working a draw where he finds a hot doe or something right? Uh, to make that move that, you know, that justifies that move. But I, I was one Ridge off this year hmm. uh, when he came through and uh, it was the coldest day of the year. Uh, and I should have, you know, now that I think about where I set up, I, I look back, I go, dude, you should, you dummy, you should have set up right here. This is the perfect spot. And you don't catch, I didn't catch that until I was already in my seat watching him one ridge over. And, uh, so that's the only visual encounter that I've ever had with him. The other, all the other encounters have been uh, trail camera data. Yeah. So this, this next trail camera pool with that timing, sounds like this is kind of a critical one to kind of see, especially if his historical patterns kind of, you know, stay, yep. al- stay aligned or whatever. But you mentioned something, you know, you're watching this deer for multiple years. And when you play the long game, it's like, you know, you learn so much from, you know, on the hoof, you know, encounters and, you know, trying to chase one deer for a period of years. Like they just, those mature deer just teach you so much whenever you get to play the game with them for a couple of years. And so I, I was just kind of wondering, man, like, you know, how, how do you feel that you've evolved as a hunter over say like the past five years? Yeah. I just calm down. I've calmed down. I'm still aggressive when I need to be, but I've just chilled out. Like yeah. old, the old Dan Johnson is the guy who runs into the woods with his dick out and he's just <laughs> like I, hunting as much as he can, hard as he can. You know, oh, dude, it's October 2nd. Well, why not hunt down with wind of this bedding area? Right. Right. Now I gather data and you, instead of, yeah. My grandpa always used to tell me this and it's, it's a classic line, right? There's two, there's two bulls and they're sitting up at the top of the hill and the, the young bull says, well, let's run down and have sex with all those cows and, or one of those cows. And the, the old bull says, well, let's walk down and have sex with them all. Right. And, and that is my, that has been my mind shift, my, my change in the way I approach hunting. It's slow down get as much information and observe as much as possible. I mean, I'm talking as much as walking into the timber, keeping your eyes open, focusing on the sign, the tracks, the terrain, um, what your wind is doing, why you should set up in this tree, like just computing 
basically mm-hmm. all the things that are going are on in the woods, what's happening with the trail camera data and slowing down and, and recognizing ch- uh, simple changes. And then if that warrants an aggressive move, then you do the aggressive move, but you're not just cannonballing into the woods. Right. Yeah, no, that totally, that totally makes sense. And I would, I would hundred percent agree with you. And I think there's also like, out, you know, external things that kind of help, help you kind of get there, like to that mindset. Like for me, it's, you know, family and career, right? It's like, I don't have every day to go hunt. So I got to, the days I do hunt, I need, I, I want to hunt as many days as I can. So I definitely have burner spots if I just right. want get to out, get out into the woods. Like I definitely have those. Yeah. But the days when the weather's right and things are kind of lining up and I know and the wind is right and, you know, more specifically the wind, like I, I definitely will play the weather and definitely get excited about those cold fronts. Um, but I don't have as many days to go hunt as I would necessarily like. And so if I get the right wind, it's like a lot of times I have to be that aggressive to where it's like, okay, the, the, you know, the temp might not be right or whatever, but the wind is right for the spot. And it's close to the time that I think I would have an opportunity here. I need to go hunt that spot, you know? And so I'll be a little bit more, you know, aggressive in that regard, but I'm kind of right there with you, man, where it's like, you know, it's that old, another old saying, right. I'm not, I'm not doing, doing cows in this one, but it's the, the, Fast is slow and slow is fast or and slow is fast and, yeah. and, and and slow is quiet. You know what yeah. I mean? It's that kind of idea of like, even when you're setting up, it's, and I think you're right, man, of just being more observant when you're in places. Um, I've started kind of like adopting this approach to where it's like, there's some days when I take off into the woods where it's like, I'll have like an area I might want to get to, to hunt or whatever, but I'm not predisposed to stopping along the way. If I find something that piques my oh, yeah. interest in just hunting that. You know what I mean? And so, right. you know, I was talking with, you know, Zach Farrenbaugh and I kind of picked this saying up from him where he was like, you know, I start my hunt without a, without a destination in mind, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? And I was like, that's perfect. You know what I mean? Because what you're saying is, is like, you're open to the possibilities when you walk in, which all, Absolutely. which automatically makes you pay attention more closely to your surroundings and what's going on, you yeah. know? And that's the one thing I think, you know, you know, you know, us having podcasts, it's like we have the benefit of being able to talk to some dudes that are just stone cold killers over the years. And that's the one thing I find in common with all of them. It's like, they're super detail oriented and there is not anything that happens around them usually that they don't take into consideration and that they don't observe. Yeah. You know, I'll, I'll add one thing here and I never used to think about it. And I think a lot of people, uh, do this is okay. Everybody wants to make it to a tree and have an encounter with a, with a deer and everybody thinks about what is this deer doing before I have this encounter with it. But let's say this encounter fails and he, maybe he's out of range or he blows you or whatever he busts you or whatever. What is that deer doing after that? Mm-hmm. And I've had a lot of thought of things to where instead of moving in further and trying to catch this deer before he got to my original location, I back out and I catch him on the further down the trail right. approach. Right. Yeah. So like, I just, it was one day I was an awakening where I just like, dude, I've been focusing so much on what the deer is doing before a certain point and not even thinking about what he's doing after it. Yeah. And once you can start to like realize that, I mean, this is just my opinion. I, I, I had some amazing encounters over the years doing right. that. Now that's really interesting, man. Cause I think, 
<clears throat> when you talk to guys, like the, they'll always say, and they'll always will kind of point to where well, he was coming from here, yeah, right. And you don't always get the back end of it, and sometimes guys just kind of forget about it, right? Because they're tell, talking about you know where he where he came from. Yeah. But the one thing you know, and I'm sure you you know have heard this too, like when you're, you're talking to some of these dudes that you know we that are just straight killers, you know, they're always it's the full picture they're looking yeah. at. Like it's not just a section of it that they're that they're paying attention to. Like they're trying to figure out like what he had for breakfast. You know what I mean? Like they're that yeah. into it, that into the details of it to fully figure out that Bucks game. That way, there's not a stone that's left un, unturned. And that to me was kind of really, you know, a couple for a couple things for me that were those kind of aha, aha moments for me. It was like figuring those things out, asking those right questions, which kind of brings me to the next thing I want to ask you, which was like. You know, I can definitively kind of remember for me whenever, not that things got easy, but like when things all of a sudden like made sense, it was like all of a sudden I went into like this space time continuum where it's like everything went into slow-mo. Like you've heard about like football players or like Jordan getting into a zone where he like the, the basketball hoop seemed like it was like as big as a, a freaking, you know, car. Like he just couldn't miss anything yeah. he threw up went in. Right. And like. I can remember like when all of a sudden, like when things slowed down in the whitetail woods for me and that it was just like everything kind of clicked, like setting up made sense, paying attention to the wind. Like I didn't have to like overthink it. Like I knew what it was going to do. I understood what my thermal was going to do in a spot. Like I started like you could see the puzzle pieces come together and like almost visualize it. I'm just curious for you. Like, do you remember a moment for you? Like all of a sudden where it's just like you're like, holy shit, this is how this works. You know what I mean? And yeah. if so what, what what was that moment? Yeah, man, it's, uh, it's not through lack of experience. The last four years specifically, let's see, 16, 16, 17, 18, and 19, those last four years have, for me, have really been the, you know, Keanu Reeves in the Matrix type mm -hmm. situations yeah. where I don't want to like say I'm that good or anything like that, but from a thought you're not, you're not thinking you're reacting. Yeah. And I think once you can get to a point like that, things slow down things, you know, you're walking into the, uh, uh timber and you, you're reacting to the observations, you know, it's like, geez, uh, okay, well, there's a, a really nice rub here, man. Do I really need to go 20 more yards? Why don't I just chill here yeah. and see what happens? You know, maybe how do you know he came from that way? Could it come from this way? Or, or uh, like you said, thermals, it, you, you just, you're watching leaves fall out of the tree, right? Mm -hmm. You're watching your breath. You're watching, um, uh, plants blowing in the wind, right? Well, this, this plant on the ground floor is blowing this way. But if you look at the tree up there, it's blowing out a different direction. Well, I'm going to be at that level. So I need to move here, here, here. And it's this, it's this constant calculating um, and I want to say in 2007, I had an encounter with what at the time was one of the biggest deer I had ever seen. Mm -hmm. And he was, I think at the time it was like a four-year-old 170 class and, uh, or I shouldn't say has seen biggest deer I ever had encounter with. Right. And for the next from 2007 until 2011, I played cat and mouse with this buck and had several encounters with him, even got an arrow in him and watched trail camera data, data of him. And it was that deer 
that taught me more about deer movement, deer behavior, how they use terrain, how they behave around does, how they. That was like an instruction manual for me of the decisions that I needed to make, make moving forward. So then 2012, I killed a, a deer 13 and 14 and 15. I didn't kill a deer. And 2016 is kind of this year that everything started to just absorb. Mm-hmm. And the reason I use Keanu Reeves from the matrix is because he didn't even have to learn it. Things were just uploaded into his brain. Yeah. And I felt, I felt like that, uh, for the first time in 2016. And that led to me harvesting a deer and the same thing for the next four years. Right. So mm-hmm. I, uh, I don't know. It's just, it was, it's, it's the past encounters. It's the experience. It's the, it's just everything rolled into one to getting to the point. And some people pick that, pick that up faster. I feel like I was a slow learner on some of those things compared to other guys that I know who are, you know, in their mid twenties and can walk into the woods and just kill shit. Yeah. Now I have a buddy like that where it's like, he's actually a relatively new. I mean, he's been hunting now for maybe four years, five years, maybe maybe his fifth year, just hunting in general, younger guys in his twenties. Um, but he is just one of those dudes where he just absorbs information and he's got like a job where he can hunt a lot. So he hunts a lot of mornings before work and a lot of evenings after work. Like he's got some flexibility, but like we'll talk about something and maybe I'll do a podcast like, like you and I are doing this podcast, right? He'll hear something. If this, you know, if this were to drop in like October, he would hear us talk about something. And if it was something he thought he could use, he would run out the next day, the next morning and apply it and try it. You yeah. know what I mean? And then it's just like, and so he has a really quick uptake because he's doing stuff that took me forever to figure out that he's doing it so much more quickly. You know what I mean? Because for me, it's like kind of like the same thing. I'd say over the past like four years, it's like it started making more and more sense. And just in being completely truthful, like this past year was the year it finally clicked for me. Like yeah. in, in Iowa, it was whenever it clicked. And I was like, no shit. It's like my setups were money. I was having good encounters. Even in Pennsylvania before I came out on, on PA Public, it's like I was having encounters with the deer that I wanted to have encounters with. You know, it's just... I was missing the opportunity by either getting dark deered or, you know, some hunter pressure came in and moved a deer and I got back on him, but then he was skittish and he, and he busted me or whatever the case was, but I was getting on the deer I wanted to get on. And it was just all starting to click and make sense. And it's just, the one thing I think is just like, and I don't know, like curious to get your perspective on this. It's like, I don't know that we're any smarter than we were before, but maybe it's just that we have the confidence now to know that when we see something to believe it. And not yeah. second guess it. Cause that was probably the biggest thing for me. Like I've second guessed myself out of so many good spots that I should have set up in that I was like, nah, I should probably keep walking. And then I ended up not seeing shit when I probably passed the best spot in the entire timber. Yeah. You know? So I don't know. What do you think, man? I mean, do you think that that's, you know, versus learning it? Do you think it's more like the confidence to believe it versus, you know, knowing it? What do you think that, what that cut is? Well, I think there's a, a switch in our brain where number one, we have to be able to learn from failure. Right. And I think, I think that is, that is had the biggest impact. I mean, you want to know, I wish I had a video camera with me all the years that I've been bow hunting to, uh, document the close encounters and the failures that I've had of deer blowing at me. Right. Whether, whether it was a doe who ruined the hunt or, you know, a big boy coming down the trail on the back end that I should have been prepared for all those things add up 
And if you're, if you're good at learning from failure, those that's going to help you. Mm-hmm. And so oh, that's learning from failure. Most, I guess that's the thing that's just helped me out over, over time. Yeah, yeah, I 100% agree with you. I've always said that, man, failure, the building blocks to success. Like, you got to have it. If you're afraid of failure, man, it's like you're not going to be very successful at much because you're going to have to intuitively be great at something. You know what I mean? Which yeah. is which is not a very likely not a very likely scenario. So so the so to add on that one that one thing, and I think this is going to actually answer your question better, is. At the at the same time. There's a time to be. Hesitant and there's a time to be aggressive. Right. And for me, I learned this some through failure, some through having these conversations with other guys who were more successful uh, and, and just having conversations with them. Right. Mm -hmm. So a guy sits on a field edge and he sees a buck shooter or whatever deer that he wants to kill across the field, come out. And he's like, I'm going to go back and I'm going to hunt that deer again. But he goes to the exact same tree stand wishing the all he's doing is he's hoping and wishing that the outcome is different. He's not yeah. doing anything different other than hoping and wishing. Well, we all know that none of that works in life at all. You yeah. can't hope or wish something into existence. So the next night he goes out there. Yeah, well, I'm going to go back to that same stand. I just hope he comes out right here. Well, that was that's what the old Dan Johnson did. He would sit in the same tree stand and he would think that the outcome is going to be different. The new Dan Johnson sees that deer. The second that deer is out of range or out of sight, he's got that tree stand down and he goes to where that deer came out. Yeah. And whether he comes out there the next night or not, that is, that is the approach that I take. Now you get that confirmation. Then you make that aggressive move. Right. Yeah. hundred percent, man. So, I mean, I'm curious, like, cause you know, we're talking about a lot of like principles that you and I like to follow whenever it comes, comes to deer hunting. And there's, and we've talked about, you know, or we've mentioned that, you know, we've had conversations with guys and stuff like that, that we get, you know, that we'll pick stuff up from, whether it's on our podcasts or whether it's just personally like having a phone call or whatever the case is. I'm curious, you know, how, how many similarities or differences that you and I have in terms of like who our biggest influences are on how we hunt. So I'm like, who's, who has influenced you? Who are the, who are the people who have influenced the way that you, the way that you approach hunting? Yeah, this is, this is a, a, a great question because I cannot relate to growing up in, you know, the nineties when, and even into the two thousands where I would call the hunting television at its peak, right? Mm-hmm. This is before YouTube and things like that. I didn't listen or watch any of that because I couldn't relate to any of that. Yeah. Right. Nope. You know, like the guy on TV, he doesn't go sit on a bucket on right. a field edge yep. <laughs> with yeah. a, a bow that his mom bought at a garage sale. Right. Like, I can't relate to that. I can't relate to food plots. And even to this day, I can't relate to that. So I had absolutely n- no people. Media. Right. Mm-hmm. So a lot of it was just like farmers that I would talk to. And this is where some of my skewed uh, learning comes in because I never really started off shooting small deer because right. I was told like, well, I, I would get a trail camera picture, you know, the, the, the ones you had to go to the store and print out. 
Mm-hmm. And I would show it to the farmer. I'd be, oh, look at this guy. He's like, don't shoot that deer. That deer is too small. <laughs> you need to shoot. You know, wait, there's bigger deer around here. If you wait, you'll get a crack at them. So here I am, this brand new hunter passing deer I should have shot because of outside influence. Now, when it comes to strategy, here's a, here's a kind of uh, a story that I, I don't tell too often, but do you know, Todd Prignitz? Yeah. He's passed, yep. passed away, but I, I was close with him for several years and I would have these conversations with him or, or trying to have conversations with him about, dude, I saw this buck. What should I do? And he would never give me an answer. He would just say, you got to move. You got to move. So if there's one person that I would say influenced me to be the hunter that I am today in a non-direct way, it was him because he would, he wouldn't tell me what to do. He would just tell me, dude, you got to move. And thus me learning from failure. Right. So all of this, I don't really have someone who I ever looked up to because I didn't have, I didn't come from a, a real hunting family. I mean, my uncles were out quote unquote outdoorsmen. I didn't come from a, I, I didn't have anybody teach me to bow hunt. Mm-hmm. I, I came, I was kind of solo yeah. and I kind of taught myself and yeah, I read some magazines. I listened to other people talk, but most of that was things that I couldn't relate to. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, I had these conversations with Todd where he would say, well, yeah, just got to move and try something different. So, right. what did I, you know, you move, you try something different. And then after that, you stop asking the questions and you start asking yourself the questions Yeah, like, okay, what, what could I have done? And then you learn to analyze, stop listening to other people really. And that, I don't want to come off cocky, but I like me and you, we can sit here and talk about principles. I don't hunt your property. Right. You don't hunt the property that I hunt. So other than talking about principles, we can't, we can't connect. Right. You know what I mean? To talk about the actual details. Yeah. And that's where the failure comes into play. Because if you're, if you go out and you're successful, you're successful, then the buck of a lifetime is going to come out and he's done throwing you for a huge loop and you don't know how to learn from that. Right. Yeah. And it's interesting because that's like also the commonality, right? Where it's like we hunt completely different properties. You know, we can talk about principles, but we both look at it and go, you're going to just have to try some things that may or may not work for you. You know yeah. what I mean? And, and, and figure it out, you know, I, and I had a feeling you would, you would mention that you would mention Todd because, you know, and, I, and I, indirectly, I think he's probably influenced me too, just because, you know, I know he and John were, were close and I know they've talked a lot about it and like, and I really kind of turned to like a lot of my, just my friends, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. you know, guys who I think are really, you know, today, like early on, like my dad hunted and that's how I was brought up hunting, you know, in, in Pennsylvania. But, it, you know, I didn't start bow hunting until I was probably, until I was 30. You know, because yeah. my dad didn't really bow hunt. He would he would bow hunt with a recurve once in a while. If it was really windy, he would go out and um, try to stalk something in a bed or or whatever. If it was wet out or whatever, he would try to use that to his advantage. But he wasn't like a diehard bow hunter. He was more into small game, and he was definitely into deer hunting. But it was gun hunting. He was he was always into bear hunting, you know, and, and turkey hunting. Um, and so that was kind of my upbringing, you know, in it. So it wasn't like there was any like deep strategic conversations. It was just yeah. brown, it's down type of thing. And, and, and that was great growing up cause I had a, had a, a shit pile of fun doing it, you know? And then when I finally got into bow hunting, it was more like the strategy that I was interested in. And, uh, you know, 
And funny enough, it was actually you and Mark. I started, it was started actually when I moved back to Pennsylvania and like picked up a bow, I started listening to you and Mark. And then that was kind of how I found out about Dan Enfault and John Eberhart and these guys that I ended up talking to personally. And that was really like my sphere of influence was that. Yeah. So hell man, maybe I could sit here and say, Dan, by God, Johnson is one of the influences. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. But uh, no, but in all, in all seriousness, you know, that was kind of like, I moved back to PA and was like, and I, uh, an old timer, a friend of my father-in-law's. Um, we were turkey hunting together and I've told this story before, but you'll get a kick out of it. We were turkey hunting one fall cause my father-in-law didn't bow hunt and we were at the family property and I just got completely shit faced the night before, like drunk as like whiskey drunker than I should ever be. And I was still drunk. Like when I got up the next morning, all hung over and we went out to turkey hunt and I went into the woods and I literally laid down on a piece of moss and passed out and like woke up however many hours later and there were deer running and and then I got up and I ended up wandering my way back to the cabin. And my, my friend Tate, my father-in-law's good buddy, was like, what'd you see? I was like, oh, I didn't see anything. I was like, I saw some deer. And I was like, man, they were chasing. And my dad never really taught me about the rut or anything like that. Like, I, we hunted gun season and that was it. When they were running, they were running scared. That was the only time you ever see him run or move. And he was like, you, you my friend, are watching the rut. Or this was been like mid to later October. So it had been like pre-rut. And I'm like, really? He's like that, you know, natural deer movement. And at that point I'd never seen natural deer movement before. You know what I mean? Like honest to God, natural deer movement when I was in the woods hunting, you know? And so it just really intrigued me. And I was like, he was like, you might want to pick up a bow. And so he ended up introducing me to bow hunting. And that was kind of, you know, I just fell in love with it. I was probably 30 and I started listening to you two and, and started picking stuff up. And then, you know, some of the guests that were on started kind of like picking up who they were. And then literally I was like, screw it. I'm going to start a podcast too. Cause I want to talk to these guys. <laughs> yeah. And that was kind of how it all started, man. So it's like in a weird way, it's like, you know, you guys were in, you know, in part like influencing how I was, you know, approaching hunting and stuff. And that's, and that's not a lie. So appreciate you, man. Well, thank you. I appreciate uh, all the kind words. Yeah, man. So it comes, it comes full circle. And now speaking of full circle, since we, since we mentioned the, uh, since we mentioned, you know, the, uh, your, your buddy from Michigan, um, <laughs> we're going to shift gears here, uh, and talk about, and talk about your Michigan hunt, because I know it's been, it's been widely discussed. When is Dan Johnson going to head to Michigan and hunt yep. and hunt Michigan? And so this year you are taking the plunge and hunting to Michigan. So you, you've already confirmed that that's happening. So I would ask you this. You know, I guess give it to me on a scale of, of one to 10. How pumped are you for this trip? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'll be honest with you. I am the kind of guy who likes to go out and experience new things. I don't that's and this is not a political answer, right? Right. Am I jacked about the you know, it's like every person I talk to and it's it keeps getting less and less the more that I talk to because the people who actually live in Michigan and who are serious hunters, they're going to, they, they reach out to me on a weekly and even daily basis. And they're just like, you know, don't sleep on Michigan, man. Yeah, if, yeah. if you put your time in, if you, you know, focus, if you do all the things right, you, there's a chance you run into a, you know, a good deer there. Right. So I'm not as, uh, I'm, I'm more jacked now about this trip than I was last month when I, you know, or a couple months ago when I was just like, yeah, okay, I'll hunt Michigan basically because of peer pressure. Right. <laughs> right. So now I'm excited 
because I am getting an opportunity here to go hunt a place that I've never hunted before. Um, go and, you know, potentially talk with, with people, see new land, try new things and, uh, really make the observation for myself, you know, see what Michigan is, you know, Michigan is all about and see if what people say is true. And, and, uh, I don't know, man, I, I'm, I'm just jacked for something different. Yeah. No, I mean, look, man, I would be too. Like I'm, I'm similar to you dude, where it's like, I just like to go hunt new places. You know, it's like, I, I try to find a new state to go hunt most years just because it's, I like seeing new stuff. I like, I, I just feel like I'm always, you know, I think this year it's like I've adapted some things where it's like over the years I've been kind of building like new pieces onto like the way I like to hunt. And I've talked about like this year I'm hunting more from the ground because I'm trying to be more multiple in my setups. Right. Cause I feel like I want to be able to take advantage of any situation. I think the same thing kind of goes whenever you're hunting out of state, like you, in, you encounter new things, which makes you think about things in a different way, which then it, it just builds that, that database, that matrix database that we were talking about, right. That you get on recall that just adds to your experiences, you know, which just yeah. ultimately makes you a better hunter because you're forcing yourself outside of your comfort zone and, you know, experiencing things that are just different from what you would, what you would typically have. And I think you're right, man. Like, you know, you can find good deer. I think that's the one thing is like, even in Pennsylvania, Pennsylvania and Michigan have a lot in common as far as like the hunting pressure and stuff like that. And you can find good deer in Pennsylvania. I mean, there's, there's places in Western PA that, you know, that guys are regularly getting on, you know, deer that are 140, 150 and, and bigger. I mean, I know there's one area in specific, you know, specifically where a guy gets on a couple booners every year, you know what I mean? And it's like, now that's an exception and not the rule, but you can find pockets of, of good deer as, as long as you're willing to put in like a little bit of work and hell, I mean, Mark killed a really nice deer last year and he's got his eyes on a decent one this year. So, you know, I think that there are decent, a decent deer there if you're, if you're willing to kind of seek them out. So, I'm, I'm, I'm interested to watch, man. I'm, I'm hoping, are you going to film this? Uh, you know, I thought about it, but I think I, 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 I might, but the self film game for me, it might be over. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if I, if I do have, if I do film it, it, I'll have a camera guy with me. Right. Right. I hear that. So, so how are you tackling this out of, you know, what's your process of kind of like dialing in a spot or finding a place or doing your scouting and stuff like that? How are you, how are you getting that all set up? Yeah, man. So a lot of e-scouting through Onyx, um, uh, Google earth, that kind of stuff, looking at the terrain, but I'd be lying if I didn't mention the amount of people who have reached out to me and basically pointed me in directions to look right Yeah. because, and maybe that's just residual of me doing what I'm doing and you doing what you do. You know, we, we talk to a lot of people, yep. we have large social media followings and you know, I'm blessed, I guess, hashtag blessed to get the, some, some info from people who hunt and live in Michigan. Yeah. I mean, I think it's simply, it's just like, we got a lot of friends. You know yeah. what I mean? And it's like, and that's the one thing I always tell people, man, it's like, you know, folks will ask like, Hey, you know, you went out of state to hunt. Like, how'd you, you know, find this place or you killed a good deer here? Like, you know, what did you, and like, I just ask people, you know what I mean? And I ask the right yeah. questions. You don't say like, Hey man, where can I kill a good deer? You know, it's yeah. like, you'll say like, I'm going to Missouri this year. Right. And so I talked to a couple of buddies that I know, you know, that I've met through social media that live in Missouri and said, Hey, I'm thinking of these couple pieces of public. Like you have any experience with any of those? Like what are the deer numbers? Good deer there. A lot of pressure. Like, you know, what's your, what's your, yeah. what are your feelings about it? 
And then, you know, from there, I kind of go from there. And then it's like I call the conservation officer for like the couple pieces that I was thinking about and ask them some questions about what's the habitat look like? What's the food situation like? What's pressure from your perspective? You know, what's the caliber of deer in the area? Just like just doing your homework, right? And just using your network to the best of your ability to try to get as much intel as you can before you end up hitting a spot. Because I think probably like you, like this whole trip to Missouri for me is going to be a freelance hunt 100% where it's like I'm not going to get a chance to scout. It sounds like that's the same for you. Yeah, it's, it's run and gun. And I think I'm only going to be there for like three, three days of hunts. So drive there, hunt, 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 leave. Nice. So it's going to be short. It's going to be sweet and, uh, it's going to be aggressive. So nice, man. Well, I hope you kill a Michigan monster. What? <laughs> right. So I hope it's your biggest deer that you ever kill actually. Dude, <laughs> dude. So there have been people who have literally told me that if I go into Michigan and kill a giant, they will, they want to fight me. <laughs> <laughs> I think you might have someone who might actually take the first round that, that lives in Michigan, you know, that might want to fight you first. <laughs> oh man. I, I'll tell you, that would be, that would be something crazy, but I'll, on a real, in a realistic standpoint, I think I'm, you know, I'm not past shooting a doe to fill the yep. tag and take meat home yep straight up yep 100 percent, man no I, I i'm i totally feel you there man especially on a three-day hunt like that like just getting into deer would be a would be a win you yeah. know what i mean just in, in general so well cool man i know i've taken up about a you know a little getting close to an hour and 20 minutes of your time i want to be sensitive uh to your family time and things you have going on this evening so i have one last question for you if you're if yes. you're game yes sir I, and i'll i'll just say that the more time I'm sitting here talking to you is the less time I I have to hear my kids bitch about whose turn it is to play Mario Brothers. Nice. Well, I don't want to keep you from something like that. I mean, good Lord. I mean, that's just that adds so much value to your life. I don't, I don't, I don't want to deprive you of that. But so last question, it's, it's a hard one. It's a tough one. It's actually a very simple question with complicated answers. Why does Dan Johnson hunt? Yeah, man, that's a good question. Um, and I'll answer it by so probably the same reason why I don't watch, uh, like a lot of hunting television shows, a lot of hunting media. Um, it's probably, I don't know. It, it's, it's a personal connection. And I, I always like, I like reading when an author tries to describe it in words. Hmm. or even someone else's, you know, here we are, we have podcasts and you listen to someone else try to, to describe what hunting means to them, but it's impossible mm -hmm. because you, you just can't do it. I can't, I can't express to you vocally, uh, through image, through, uh, any type of description about what it means to me, because it's something that only I and nature can connect on mm -hmm. and I can try, but I, I will leave something out. I will miss something. Mm -hmm. And it is, it is, it's, it's a connection that goes beyond like words beyond. I don't know, man. I, I, it's hard. It's hard to describe because I don't think it can be described. I think that's perfect, man. I think it's an, I think it's an awesome answer, man. Some things, 
some things just don't need to be said. You know, I think that's, I think that's a great way to kind of wrap this thing up. But before I let you go, brother, I really appreciate you coming on, man. I've had a blast talking to you. We need to make sure that we don't take quite so long next time to get connected and, and, and do some, <laughs> and do some bullshitting. But before I let you go, let folks out there know where they can find out more about Dan Johnson, where they can find out more about uh, Sportsman's Nation and all the things you have going on. Yeah, man. Uh, Sportsman's Nation is the the network that uh, the Nine Finger Chronicles podcast is on. Uh, you can go to iTunes, say, you know, same as uh, Truth from the Stand, man. Anywhere Truth from the Stand is, you can find the Nine Finger Chronicles. You can find the Sportsman's Nation. And, uh, man, stories, content, strategy, meals, you name it, we cover it. Awesome. So be, be sure to head over to check him out on Instagram and all the places where he lives. Give him a follow, give him a like, give him a sub, just give him some love in general. Dan, brother, I appreciate you coming on, man. Let's talk soon. Yeah, absolutely, man. All right, folks, that is a wrap for today's show. I'd like to thank all of you for listening. If you haven't yet, please head over to iTunes and leave us a five-star rating and be sure to subscribe to the podcast in hell. While you're at it, head over to YouTube and give us a sub there as well. I'd be super appreciative if you do those couple things for me. And before I shut this thing down, I need to give a big shout out to our partners who continue to help us make this podcast possible. Tether, Exodus Outdoor Gear, Skull Brew Coffee Company, and Maven Optics. And until next time, we'll see y'all. All right, gang, the new Truth merch is in stock at truthfromthestand.com and on YouTube below any of the Truth From The Stand videos. I've got some new hats, beanies, t-shirts, long-sleeve t-shirts, and sweatshirts. There's even a new do-hard-shit hat for those of us who like to embrace micro-dosing adversity. So head to truthfromthestand.com and check out the new gear and use the code TRUTH, T-R-U-T-H, and save yourself some cash on the new gear.